0: Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to VTViewpoint at RadioVermont.com.
1: Good morning, everyone. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint. Um, Joining me today by phone is Louise Calderwood who is the Director of Regulatory Affairs for the American Feed Industry Association. She used to be a member of the Vermont Technical College Transition Advisory Task Force, and we're going to talk to her about that. And, like she doesn't have any enough on her plate, she's also the owner of a family farm called Echo Hill Farm uh, in Craftsbury. Welcome,
2: Good morning, Pat. Such
1: a pleasure to be with you. Well, I'm so thrilled I saw you the other night at the Highland Arts Center. I just did some math, Louise. We met 35 years ago. Good thing we're not getting older, right?
2: No, we were both 12. <laughs> exactly.
1: Just smart. <laughs> smart 12-year-olds. I, I, do my math. I do my math very quickly.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's funny. I looked, I really couldn't believe it. Um, you were, um, well, let's just talk first about the Echo Hill Farms because lots of awards over there. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the farm uh, and also about your sons and their love of goats?
2: Sure. Great. Thank you, Pat. Well, it's a good time of year to chat about Echo Hill Farm because it's maple season. Um, The farm, the sugaring part of the farm has been in the Caldwell family in Craftsbury for five generations. Uh, We're sugaring in the fifth sugar house. It looks like every generation gets to build its own sugar house. Um, Currently, I have about 4,500 trees right there in in, uh, Craftsbury. And I have leased the production side to a young fellow um, who handles the actual manufacturing of the fact, but
1: I still oversee all of the marketing. That's really great. I love on your website you have recipes because you do a lot of maple products. The one I like the most, I need to call it to people's attention, you recommend a tablespoon of maple syrup in spaghetti sauce. That's a new one. Oh,
2: you've got it. Yeah, you you add the sugar, a little bit of sugar with the acid in the tomatoes, and it's amazing. Uh, there are some members of my family who think it needs to be more than a tablespoon, but I believe in moderation.
1: Well, there you go. I'm going to try that for sure. And let me, I, I know I'm going to regret this question. I just am. You talked to me, you, you sent me a note about your older son, Doug, who has 250 goats. He is breeding, and is this month to freshen next fall. What does the word freshen mean? I know I'm going to hate this answer.
2: Now, Pat, I thought I could type that up, and you'd know right what it meant. <laughs> when, it, when a dairy when a dairy animal has uh, either the calf or the lamb or the kid, because we milk all of those in Vermont, right? Um, and, and start producing milk, we say the animal freshen. Ah. Now then, she hasn't been producing milk. So she has whatever form of baby she's going to have, and then she freshens and starts to produce milk.
1: There you so go. So, yes, Doug,
2: yes. Uh, Doug was milking a little over 200 head of those uh, shipping commodity milk to be manufactured into uh, Vermont cheese products. And then last summer, the increase in fuel and feed costs, it just did not make sense to keep okay. So, he sold all of his, so kept all of his young stock, and he was looking forward for a couple. Very busy week here, So
1: we get all of those girls bred new questions in the fall. That's that's awesome. Um, I just want to give you a little heads up, Louise. We're having a little trouble with the connection and you gave us a second phone number, so on the break, we're gonna to try to get you on that phone. Um, because actually you, let
2: okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a quick
1: speaker change over here. Oh, okay. yeah. We'll um, Just make sure that we can hear Louise because she's got an amazing background. Um, She was deputy – this is where I met her. She was deputy commissioner of the Vermont Agency of Agriculture. She served from 1988 to 2006, and that's where we met. Um, Louise was – who was Leon Graves? Was he the commissioner back then?
2: He certainly was. Mm. And I realized we've, we've got a little typo there. I was deputy secretary from 98
1: ah. to 06. Okay. Yes,
2: for for 8 years, I uh, started with Leon Graves under Howard Dean and then yep. transitioned to Steve Kerr under Jim Douglas.
1: There you go. That's yep. right. Well, Leon, I just remember him. He had the biggest hands and the strongest hands of anybody I had met and w- when he would milk a the cow, they would pay attention. Because he was he was definitely in control. He I did a milking contest with him and Ray Burke and Tom Hardy over in the Burke Farm. Honest to God, we were there and all we did was laugh because I wasn't very successful at it and Ray Burke thought it was the funniest thing. But anyway, that's another story. Um so you also started after you left the agency, you started as Cold Calderwood Consulting and um I bet you, you must have had a lot of clients because you have so much experience in policy development, everything agriculture, market, research, grant development, everything. Um, what made you decide to, a, to go on fun, your own there?
2: A very, yeah, that was a fun 12 years, Pat. And actually, my business card did say everything agriculture there because I enjoyed working with such a breadth of agricultural businesses in Vermont. Uh businesses that were in agricultural production, agricultural processing, um, folks that were looking at at providing other services to agriculture. And it was just, it was all the fun parts of being an extension agent and being a deputy secretary all rolled into one. That's Uh, And it was just, you know, looking back over those 12 years and looking at the, the projects and the products, that I was on the ground floor of launching is just such a sense of personal satisfaction.
1: Nice. Well, you were darn good at it, Louise, if I remember correctly. You certainly knew um, your stuff. And then um, right now you're working for the American Feed Industry Association, AFIA. Can you talk a little bit about that and your role as the Director of Regulatory Affairs? And this is about pet food and equine
2: nutrition, well, those are the two committees mm-hmm. that I staff. We are a 650-member organization, and we represent all aspects of animal feed. So certainly livestock feed, pet, equine, aquaculture. Basically, I say if it has fins, fur, or feet, we feed it. <laughs> That's a great slogan. Fins, fur, feathers. <laughs> I never in heard that. Feathers or feathers. That's so cool. Yeah, we, we feed it.
1: Well, I was particularly um, um, focused on your pet food because my dog has diabetes. And yes. we have to always buy diabetic dog food and treats and everything. And thank goodness you're there because she needs it and it, keeping her healthy.
2: We're so fortunate in the, in the creativity, the professionalism, that our pet food manufacturers have in this country, the, their their focus on the longevity of our animals. You know, all of the farm animals, we're looking to get those animals to have a very specific length to their life. Excellent. And then with pets, we're looking for them to live as long as possible. So it's, it's a very different approach that's being brought to the nutrition. And the, the, the focus on the uh, cognition of pets as they age their joint health, their digestive health, hmm. in your case, their metabolic health, and the role that nutrition plays for that in all of our animals, uh, our pets because they live so long, but all of the production animals as well. It's amazing what can be accomplished through nutrition.
1: Right, because I I really – well, first of all, she needs it, and um... – I always feel very good about giving it's a few dollars more, but it is worth it because she is so healthy. And um, and I know you focus on uh, regulatory issues and safety issues. And I always feel very confident in the food that we're feeding her. Um, just from a stepping back a little bit, how are you viewing agriculture in Vermont these days? That's sort of a out of out of left field question, but. Are we, are we doing well? We've lost a lot of farms, but Ensign told me that with technology, we're actually producing almost as much as we used to when the farms were all here.
2: Sure. And Pat, with so many things in life, what matters here is the denominator. And the denominator that you've just mentioned is farms. But consider other denominators. Acres in agricultural production. People employed in agricultural enterprises, mm-hmm. the the gross the gross product being created out of Vermont, and the value of that product, those are the indicators that I think that we need to be tracking. Certainly, the number of farms is a telling indicator, but when I look at the creativity, the innovation, the excitement around the development of new products, uh, while I firmly understand the challenges that we face within agriculture, I do see the opportunities that still exist in agriculture in Vermont and throughout the country.
1: That's great. And you sound very excited about your job, which is always good to hear. I like when people really like their job. I looked on AFIA's website and I saw something I don't think I've seen too often. They list four promises it 's not a goal it 's not a mission statement it 's a promise which has more strength, I think than mission statements and goals um, and i 'm just going to read them real quick and then get your your feedback on them. We do have to go to a break in about a minute, um, and i don 't think we need to change the phone i 'm looking at the i think it whatever you did louise it works it 's work and we 're good um, Great. So I, these four promises. To their members, which you said are 650 strong, you will have a voice as part of the total animal food industry. You We will provide expert legislative and regulatory leadership. We offer confidential individual staff expertise, and we will provide engagement opportunities for specialized training um, and education. I, that's really great. What a great company to put down. I don't know why I, I was so impressed with the word promises
2: well they they are they are what allow us to assist our member companies to do their good work
1: that's really that's really great cuz they um i think they it sounds like they must live up to their promises cuz that's um what they should be doing for sure so you have a relationship also with the association of the american feed uh control officials which works very closely with AFIA um, to come up with sound legislation, and they referred to the AAFCO model fee bill, which all states have apparently except Alaska, but I couldn't find out why not Alaska. But could you talk a little bit about um, um, how everybody's sort of um, um, working for the same goal?
2: Sure. The Association of American Feed Control Officials is all of the state regulators, and they come together twice a year To create a marketplace uniform, uniform marketplace standards across the country for animal feed created in 1909. So that basically in those days, a bushel of oats in in New York was the same as a bushel of oats in Ohio. It was it was marketplace standardization. And not surprisingly, our association was created exactly the same year to serve as the industry balance to the regulators. And we have met twice a year, every year since 1909, with one very brief break during the Second World War. And so the purpose of ASCO is to bring a uniform uniform balance into the marketplace, and our goal is to make certain that that works for industry, for the companies that are actually manufacturing the feed. So this is a very quick example using pet foods. Congress mandated in 07 that pet food labels be modernized to be more approachable to consumers. Uh, we have been working with ASCO on this, and I'm happy to say that just last week, it finally, the modernization changes passed the committee within ASCO, and I think you can expect to see those changes Correct. on your pet food labels within the next three to five years. Excellent. So your pet food labels... Are going to start looking more like what you see in a human foods nutrition facts box, Excellent. increasing the understanding of consumers for the, the foods they are buying for their pets. So that's an example of the regulators working with industry to benefit consumers. That's great. Um, Louise, uh,
1: Louise, I, with your work on regulatory activities, I think there must be a lot of travel involved here.
2: An awful lot of travel,
1: yeah. Do you get to work with the farmers directly, or are you working with, um, you know, kind of your offices behind the scene? Are you out there with the farmers?
2: Well, no, I generally work with the regulatory Mm -hmm. affairs and quality staff from companies. So um, I am generally three to five steps removed from the production of the products that go into the animal feeds. But my strong background in animal production, my understanding and appreciation for the the manufacturing of the ingredients that go into the animal feeds, and then the product from the animals that we are feeding is essential for building uh, a sound basis around my review of regulatory affairs. That's great. It, it is interesting how the all of the dots connect, Pat.
1: Well, yeah, it usually does if you just kind of stop and take a look at how many people are involved in farming in in the agricultural industry. It's pretty staggering. Um, I know here in Vermont, the biggest issue over the years has been water quality. Is that something that's, um, that you deal with? Um, in other states, I'm sure they're all, we're all having the same problem.
2: Sure. Uh, if I look at that from the, from the history of my engagement with agriculture, water quality has been such an essential theme. My early days as an extension agent, when we first rolled out the, the most baseline practices uh, that were required for farmers in Vermont, the best management practices, and then, then moved that through the large farm operation and medium farm operation, mm-hmm. regulatory processes, to the to the regulatory framework that we have in Vermont today. Uh, you know, I was on the ground level of that as a producer with, with my own dairy herd. And my husband and I milked 160 cows in Craftsbury. Mm. And also my technical and educational assistance as an extension agent. And then that moved into my regulatory piece of, of writing those new, those new statutes for the regulation. What I have seen, Pat, which I think speaks to your question, is that over the years, farmers have embraced their understanding of water quality. And what started out as a regulatory framework they now understand is an essential part of their day-to-day production practices. Water quality is a reflection of soil stewardship. And regardless of the production methods that are employed uh, by farmers, you know, if they're choosing to use organic methods or they're choosing to use GMO crops or the you know the most modern cutting edge technology, it comes down to a basic stewardship of the soil, which can be achieved through all production methods. I am a firm believer in that.
1: Yeah, I read somewhere where you said the key to profitable farming is building the health of our soils. So it's all about the healthy soil and which kind of flies in the face of Farmers doing every, they have to do everything they can to protect the soil, to keep the water clean. And you've you've commented about how much they really do respond to the regulations, and that they do things, um, uh, planting vegetation, buffer barriers, um, uh, using methane digesters. They're really they're really working at it, and sometimes get maybe a bad rap.
2: Well, the heartening piece to me is that I think farmers have moved well beyond the regulatory requirements mm. for soil health and water quality and they understand those are those are best practices for the productivity of their farm
1: mm-hmm. it's
2: it's moved so far beyond just the regulatory requirements and i find that to be just a wonderful transition over the years, I've been engaged with agriculture.
1: Yeah, for sure. Because that's, whenever they talk water quality, you always hear about the farmers. But from what I've learned and people have told me, it's, it's not as they are presenting it. Farmers are working very hard because they appreciate the, the land that they're, that they're farming on. So, um, and, and it's only to their benefit that the water stays clean and the soil is, is as it should be.
2: Those pieces you can't trade
1: off. That's for sure. For sure. Um, So can you just talk a little bit about, you obviously love farming and Vermont, if I may throw that in. How did that love grow and and obviously transfer to your sons? I mean, that's really exciting, especially for young people to be getting into the agricultural business.
2: So I grew up absolutely a suburban child of an army officer pat (laughs) whoa (laughs) but when i was in second grade we were living in virginia and we made a trip to the university of maryland farm and that was the first place i saw a dairy cow and it was all over it was Mm. done (laughs) and uh and from there on, the the pathway was very clear. It moved through a love of horses, which all little girls have, which I've never given up, by the way, right. um, to to a recognition of just a love of any animals with hooves. But then it was a recognition of how wonderful dairy farmers are as just a, a class of human beings, and uh, that's where the love of dairy came. And, nice. and a cute little side story. And then I do want to talk about my son. Um, so I visited the the Maryland farm as a, in second grade, probably 1968, 69. Fast forward to 2019, another, what's that, 50 years mm-hmm. later, mm-hmm. I went to a University of Maryland women's basketball game, and I walked out of the stadium. My eyes went out across the parking lot, and oh, my gosh, Pat, I was looking right at the little farm I had visited 50 years earlier. Oh, stop. I recognized every piece of it. I went over and got my picture taken. I was like, oh, my goodness. (laughs) After a while, you wonder, like, did that really happen? Am I making that story up? Is that where this all started?
1: (laughs) That's really Do you know what's really exciting? And you're mentioning kids that, that the farmers open up their farms for tours and just to get people exposed to what farming is all about. And I bet that your story has, um, has reoccurred several times with kids being on the farm and seeing what it's all about because
2: I am the example of why you have to let second and third grade children onto your farm. There you go. Because that's where it started. I'm I, no, no, no doubt about it. That's great. Second grade field trip and it was all over. Career path set. Um, but about my sons, because, of course, I want to chat about <laughs> the sons a little bit. Um, my older son, Doug, is quite the entrepreneur. As I mentioned, he was milking a little over 200 head of goats. He's now looking to get 250 young stock bred and uh, strongly considering going back into production this fall. But in addition, uh, he's tapping some maple trees. He produces hay, which he's selling out-of-state and in-state. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has a repair shop on his farm where he repairs farm equipment for other farmers. And then a, a local dairy farmer hires him three days a week to repair equipment for them. So he's an example of agriculture may look different, but Doug is involved in production agriculture. He's involved in agricultural services, uh, still fully ingrained in agriculture. It may look a little different than it would have 50 years ago, but it's what he does all day long. Uh Doug's younger brother Andy uh is married and a father married to a wonderful young woman, Maddie Calderwood, father of two darling granddaughters, I might add. <laughs> uh important. and uh he works for the sellers at Jasper Hill. Basically, if it needs to be repaired, Andy repairs it. That's
3: uh, what uh, a great place
2: Maddie, to work. Yeah. Oh yeah. And his wife Maddie also firmly engaged in agriculture. Um, working with service management for some farmers, grant development, business development—you uh, know the the pieces, the nuts and bolts behind agricultural production. So that's great. You know, both of my sons and my daughter-in-law are firmly involved in agriculture, which for me is such a sense of pride mm. and happiness.
1: Good for you, Louise. It's in the blood, I'm sure. Um, we have to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with Louise Collarwood, um to take on another subject that she's very passionate about: tech ed. And agricultural education. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV.
0: Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos, including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group. We're more than just radio.
1: Hi there, you all. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint. Um, on WDEV, and we are here talking to Louise Calderwood, consummate farmer, Um, involved in every aspect, I would think. But I wanted to switch gears, if you don't mind, Louise, and talk the next half hour of something that you were involved in, and um, I'm sort of a little jealous because one of my passions in life, and I've done a lot of shows on it, is technical education. It's what our employers need uh, is people that can work with their hands. And you became very involved back in 2020 um, in an effort called Revisioning Vermont Technical College Agricultural Education. Um, I read where it started. I remember when Jeb uh, Spaulding, who was the uh, chancellor at the time, pro- made a huge proposal. I listened to the whole presentation to close the VTC campus in Randolph, and sort of to move TechEd up to Williston. And um, you heard that, I know, and started um, doing something about it. Could you talk about your efforts back then?
2: Certainly. Uh, it was April of 2020 that I received a phone call from Ellen Taylor, the executive director of the Vermont Sustainable Jobs Fund. And uh, certainly the news of the proposal for, for the Randolph campus for Vermont College uh, hit hard on anybody that is focused on the future of agriculture in Vermont. And Regina Beidler, uh, she and her husband, Brent, were dairy farmers that uh, lived right next to Vermont Technical College, and she works for, uh, or you know, organic dairy organizations. Um, they had gotten hold of uh, Pat Moulton, the then president of Vermont Tech, and had said, look, we cannot let this happen. So they called in me as well, uh, just as you said, just because of my breadth of background with agriculture uh, regulation and production in Vermont. And so the four of us got to work. And I will tell you that for two years, we met every Tuesday morning.
1: Hmm.
2: And for the last year, we've met every other Tuesday morning on this project. Um, We brought in a total of 40 amazing volunteers and broke down the chunks. Uh, we, We did the visioning of what could be in the way of transforming the education. We overlaid that onto a deep analysis of what we saw as the future needs for technical education for Vermont and the New England region. And then we married those two pieces together, the visioning and what we saw as the concrete needs, um, to rework the curriculum. And that involved reworking what would the production look like on the campus. Uh, VTC campus's agricultural production had been very traditional for Vermont. It was an 80-cow dairy, uh, a small orchard, a small sugar bush, uh Very, very traditional sorts of production models. And as I had said earlier today, Pat, farmers in Vermont are so creative and innovative in how they're approaching agricultural production. We realized that we needed flexibility through the Vermont Vermont Technical College Agricultural Program to accommodate that creativity and flexibility. So through what's now... The state university, uh, we envisioned a model where base skills would be available to students on the campus for around agricultural education. But then an extremely important piece of it is the development of internships. Mm -hmm. And so this would give the students a chance to develop base skills in the basically the safety net of an academic setting, but then be able to work for individual businesses to really focus on what are they interested in the way of production. Um, are they interested in organic apple production? Are they interested in in producing just pumpkins on a large scale? Or if we look at something like dairy, are they interested in goats or cattle, organic, uh,
4: creating farmstead
2: cheeses, milking a thousand cows using rotary parlors, um, so the development of an, of a strong internship program allowed the students to be exposed to the specific type of businesses where they thought they may actually be employed. Uh, so with that in mind, uh, we developed a business plan, an organizational model, uh, which we are now acting on. Uh, the, the, uh, excuse me, we're in, we're in the process now of, uh, developing the interview process for the director of Hmm. a Center for Agricultural Entrepreneurship within the state college system.
0: Uh,
2: We will also be looking at an internship coordinator. Uh, We are collecting the funding for a revised meat cutting lab because we recognize the need for those skills within Vermont Agriculture. So the pieces are coming together. It's been three years of hard work. But the funding is being aligned. Uh, the new president of the state university uh, attends the board meetings, which are yes. held quarterly, uh, to review and keep the process moving ahead. Uh, it has been three years of very hard work with just amazing volunteers. Help.
1: That, that is, I'm very excited that this is still going on. I couldn't tell from my research, uh, because you were supposed to give a report to the legislature and obviously they're supportive of this, um, because you're continuing on. So I'm very glad to hear that. Um, I have, we talked to Anson Tebbets a lot and, um, uh, I also talked to businesses who know how important tech ed is and I think finally people are uh really starting to catch on how important it is over and above um, some of the college courses that you can take and you've got accredited, I uh, can't even say the other word you've got uh, programs that you can get accreditation and then non-accreditation and then as you talked about the apprenticeship uh model which is really excellent um, I read where you said that students can expect real world experiences in production marketing and sales and that's what's so important to prepare them for the real world as we say right
2: yes uh you one thing that we haven't captured yet is that i i did spend a number of years teaching at sterling college oh uh, cool. so very different model than vermont technical college but um, a, a particular course up there which speaks to what you just said around production and marketing uh, was my animal science course. And uh, we figured out that we could buy baby little tiny buckling goats this time of year. And by the end of the semester, we could have those buckling goats to market weight. And I would pack up students, live goats, federally USDA-inspected goat carcasses, Hmm. and we would head down to New York City. So the students would raise the goats for the semester, and at the end of the semester, we would head down to New York City with goats in various forms and physically sell the goats. Wow. So those students followed those animals right through from choosing the animals they were going to buy, raising the animals, and then moving the animals into the marketplace across the of a single course. So the Vermont Technical College model that we're developing is an opportunity for students to have comparable experiences over a multi-year continuum.
1: Well, that's really exciting. Now, is your is your report to the legislature is it, it's online somewhere? Is it not? Because I, I must admit, I couldn't find it, and I actually would love to read it um but it's do you know where it can be found
2: Yes it should be within the agricultural section of uh the state university okay. I will look that up and get that to you oh, yes.
1: I re- so I, re- I really cuz I might want to do another follow up show on this cuz that I just think this is so important for Vermont we are an agricultural state and what really kills me here Louise is that we are 40% of Vermonters deal with food insufficiency, which is a stagger, in my mind, a staggering number and totally unacceptable. So the more yeah. we can get people involved in agriculture, the better.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and the resiliency of the agricultural production system through all the phases of it. Uh, and that so that's what we're really hoping to address through the work at Vermont Technical College. I, I spoke about the production side, but on the processing, I mentioned meat processing, mm-hmm. but as where I said that we we married the visioning with what we heard from businesses, and what we clearly heard from businesses was the need for employees with technical expertise, experience around food safety. Uh, baseline production practices, whether we're talking beer or cheese mm. or meat. Um, and so that was part of the work that we did where we spoke with just a wide range of businesses within Vermont to understand what their needs were and then developing the curriculum uh, through the state university to address those business needs.
1: That's great. I heard that word beer. I perked right up. Um, <laughs> I love this state because we have. I mean, um, the beers that we have to offer here are just incredible. No matter where you go, there's some amazing beers being produced. Um, but um, you, do you get involved in milk, in milk pricing, in what you do, or is that a, a different different area? Because obviously, that's always a big issue: is the the price of milk and and how hard right. it is on our farmers?
2: No, I have moved past those days, Pat. Mm-hmm. There wasn't there was a time in my life about twenty years ago where I was highly focused on that. Right. Um, now my engagement with dairy uh, is an example is uh, the sustainability of mm-hmm. dairy production. It's basically the sustainability of any sort of food animal production and even pet food. So, uh, where I would overlap with dairy now is the ability of farmers to have access to technology that reduces the methane emissions from dairy cows. Hmm. And this is, this is technology that's available to farmers in Brazil and the EU, not available to U.S. farmers. Our regulatory process has locked us out of that. Hmm. So um, those are the types of engagements that I would have that would focus directly on
1: dairy. Why would – oh, I have to take a break now, Louise, and then we can come back and talk about why you're locked out here in the U.S., because that's rather interesting. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We'll be right back with Louise Calderwood. Hi there. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint, and I'm here with Louise Calderwood – uh, Director of Regulatory Affairs for the American Feed Industry, uh, owner of a family farm, Echo Hills, and uh, involved with the VTC, Transition Advisory uh, Task Force, to talk about um, education programs uh, and agriculture. Um, that sounds – your program, first of all, sounds like it's it's there. It's going to stay and I'm assuming will be very successful because um, – if you're really teaching these kids with hands on, real world experiences, I think that's what gets kids involved and excited about something.
2: Right. And Pat, I do need to be clear um, that we are not enrolling students in the program for this fall. Ah, okay. Um, as I said, we're, well, we're in the process of hiring the executive director, uh-huh. hiring the internship coordinator, getting the meet. Program up and running, and it was just recognized the amount of heavy lifting that had to go on right. to bring about all of these changes and the new staffing models that there just was not the bandwidth at that point to bring in a new class of students. So the existing students are being taught out. Um but we will be looking at enrolling students again within another year.
1: Well, exciting something to look forward to. if we can help you on the the radio. let me know um and then this is everything I've read about this is agriculture and food system the food is is sort of the end product. is that what what you're dealing with? how to get it to the to the public, to the consumer? What's it's that correct, part Pat. of the process?
2: back to your point about uh, food insecurity Mm. and the resiliency of the food system and uh, the understanding that that the production of the product is only one tiny piece of the pie. You know, when I mentioned raising the buckling goats and having the students take them all the way through into the marketplace, or if you talk to a cheesemaker, they will say by the time they – they get the grass grown, the cow milked, the milk turned into cheese. That's only half the job. The other half of the job is aging and marketing the cheese. Mm-hmm. So it's just that recognition of um, the the food system is so much more complex than simply the production of the food.
1: Um, Louise, where d- does goat get sold? And you said you bring it to the marketplace I am. That's not something I don't think that's in Price Chopper or any of the um, the larger food chains that I shop in, is it?
2: No, it isn't. And I just I just had an amazing goat stew that I just fixed for supper last night, and there were no leftovers. Yeah. Um, but those are from goats I raised myself. Uh, the marketing of goats uh, when the students took them down to New York City, it was a combination of marketing them into live animal markets where people would come and pick their actual goat hmm. uh, to be slaughtered on site. And, and these are all um, inspected legal facilities in New York City. Right. Um, and then we would also sell some to very high-end restaurants uh, who would have an in-house butcher in the restaurant who could use every piece of the goat in just amazing different recipes. Um, and then, of course, the ethnic market is a another uh, market, which we're even after 30 years of focus on it, we're still only developing our understanding of that. In Vermont, uh, out on Pine Island, as part of uh, the Intervale system, through in in Colchester, uh, there is uh, a young man there who buys buckling goats from goat dairies around Vermont and raises those. Largely for the ethnic market, hmm, um, so they're they're marketed various different ways. It is possible to buy goat, but you're you're right. You're probably not going to buy it at the brand name grocery store. Um, but boy, if you want some good recipes for goat, I can give you some well, of those.
1: There used to be a restaurant I lived in Tarrytown, New York, um, on on this side of the Tappan Zee, and they had a, a restaurant there um, that had goat stew on the menu all the time, and I loved it. It was excellent. Um, but it, it sounds like it might be a tough sell for people. Um, I don't think other than that goat stew experience, I've not really had goat chops or whatever else one might want to do with, um, the goat itself. They are cute though as babies, I will say.
2: Jumping around like they're cutest they do. They're cute as babies yeah. and they're, they're tasty as adults. Let's follow oh. it all the way through, Pat.
1: Yeah, no, I know. I, no, I'm with you. I had goats too. I just, um, it, there's a lot of marketing probably that needs to be done to get people to, um, to start, um, eating goat. Um, I don't know what, what could break that, um, break that wall there, but it must be something because you're right. The food insecurity in this state, if we've got something that will help with that, I'm just sign me up. It, it yeah. upsets me to no end, Louise to, uh, to watch that number change. And, and you can't tell from looking at a person's house, whether they're dealing with food insufficiency or not, especially after COVID, because that's one of the first yeah. things that gets cut on your budget is the kind of food you buy and how much you spend. And that's why people are struggling, even behind the McMansions.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and uh, that certainly, as you said, became highly visible during the pandemic yep. uh, when those weak links started to break. You saw just how fragile the entire system was.
1: Yep, I agree. Yep. Anyway, I've had uh, the Chancellor um, Z- uh, Zlatny on and Lynn Dickinson on, who's the chair of the um, college uh, trustees, and throughout their whole strategic plan, and I think it's something that you – um, used as well in in your role at VTC, they talk about affordability, accessibility to the programs, accessibility for students to achieve success to give them what they need, quality and re- relevance and I think you 've probably hit every one of those in coming up with um, with what you 're doing with agriculture. And um, I hope they have a big ribbon cutting and a lot of kudos to you and all those people. Forty people in Vermont working hard—that's that in itself is is kudos to you and to Ellen and Regina. What a team! And Pat, I should yeah. Pat's obviously and, and in Pat, there. Yeah, and the, I have to yeah. have her on and, the and show. And
2: within those, within those volunteers, Pat, those were not folks that just showed up and sat. They rolled up their sleeves. Yeah. They got to work. Um, There was one group of us that it was nothing for us to be talking to each other at 7 o'clock on a Friday night, Hmm. back on a phone call together at 8 o'clock on a Sunday morning, because we had to have something ready for a meeting on Tuesday. Um, These these volunteers just worked so hard. Well, that was quite
1: a startling presentation that Jeb made back then, and I listened to it all, and I'm just like, What? You can't close VTC in Randolph. I mean, especially if you're going to what's in Williston? How do you teach uh, technical college in at uh, Williston? So I was uh, right with you. And thank you for all that, that you did, um, you and Pat and uh, Regina and all the 40 folks. Thank you very much. Now, we have just a few minutes left. Um, I, Louise, I'd like to talk about Echo Hill Farm. How do we get some of your maple syrup? Can we go to the farm? Um, is it in local areas? Can we buy it online? How well, does that work? <laughs> well, about
2: 90% of my syrup is shipped to either North Carolina or Texas. Ah, Louise. But, but, yes, yeah, certainly, Echo Hill Farm, uh, dot com is uh, my website and you're absolutely happy to, excuse me, order it off my website or the phone number is also on the website and I'd love to have folks call me up and say, hey Louise, can I stop by? Oh. Uh-huh. I, I do need to just point out, as I said, I have leased the production Piece of it to a young man. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, I'm no longer part of uh, the Maple Open House weekend or having folks stop by the Sugar House during production. But um, certainly welcome to stop by the Sugar House. I can still walk you through the process and uh, can assure you of the quality of the syrup.
1: That's great because I read you have – these are award-winning syrups. You've um, uh, placed best of show in international maple competitions, the Vermont Farm Show, and our local fair. So we'll have to – Yeah, the keeps-
2: international competition was fun. We were literally walking out the door and said, oh, gosh, we need to take some syrup. And you know, normally you keep your best syrup, you know, in the freezer, very carefully packaged to enter into awards. Right. We literally grabbed a jug off the shelf. <laughs>
1: and you won and it ended
2: up winning it was best of show. That yeah. Is that was that was a you. very fun day.
1: That is awesome. Louise, I have had love talking to you. Um I'm so glad you were able to come on the show. Good to catch up after 35 years. Good grief. Um, thank you to Louise Calderwood, and uh, thank you all for tuning in. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Hi there. This is Pat McDonald, back again with Vermont Viewpoint. Joining me for the second hour of the show is Annette Smith, who's the executive director of Vermonters for a Clean Environment. Annette, welcome to the show. Good morning, Pat. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. And you? Good. Thank you. Trying to st- figure out S5. I'm so glad you could come on the show because um, we've talked about S5, which the title I use is Clean Heat Standard, but it's been known by many other names. Um but something very sort of strange happened to the bill along its uh, route uh, in the legislature. Um, we've talked about it as it um, uh, came out of the Senate uh, Natural Resources, but went to um, Senate Appropriations, and it sort of changed a little. Um, but first, before we get into that, after, could you tell folks a little bit about your background and and about the organization, Vermonters for a Clean Environment?
5: Vermonters for a Clean Environment was started in 1999 in response to a natural gas power plant and pipeline project, and uh, it, it was nothing I ever intended to continue doing, but uh, 23 years later, <laughs> we have been working all over Vermont, assisting citizens in having a voice in what goes on in their communities, and uh, participating in regulatory processes, and holding corporations accountable for their actions in our communities. We serve as a bit of a watchdog role, and so it is in that role that we uh, are, are engaged in the discussions about this uh, uh, heat standard and um, we really are a, a genuinely a grassroots organization. Our work is driven by the issues of concern to vermonters
1: that 's great i'm glad you're, you're glad you're here because we do need all opinions at the table. Um, we seem to be losing that a little bit here in Vermont. I think you and I met about wind turbines. That's when we first connected uh, back yes. back in the day. Um, but you've been very vocal about S5. Um, it was a, it was in the, its original form. It received quite a bit of feedback. And now maybe you could just tell us what's happened to the bill. And they say it's just a study. So, what
5: happened with the Appropriations Committee is exactly what happened last year when it was called the Clean Heat Standard, and now they're calling it the Affordable Heat Act.
1: Oh, I've changed.
5: I, I uh, sort of crossed the line when I testified to the Senate Natural Resources Committee this year and renamed it the Stupid Heat Standard. <laughs> I didn't right. win any friends. I was going to say, I how to win friends. <laughs> well, you know, I felt like I needed to to to, to state it that way. Because our objection to it is the overall policy, not that it can be fixed. So they claim to have sort of fixed it because the way it came out of the Natural Resources Committee was that it would be uh, turned into a a rule by the uh, Public Utility Commission that would then just go through the Legislative Committee on Administrative Rules, which just has a handful of legislators on it. So as happened last year, the Senate Appropriations Committee put in what they're calling a checkback, which is that after the Public Utility Commission goes through its very extensive process in not enough time, they will send it back to the legislature for full legislative process in the House and Senate and subject to the governor's review. And so I I don't think it's an improvement because I object to – the process that they are intending to put the Public Utility Commission through when our Public Utility Commission already is, and so are our other state agencies, overwhelmed with work.
1: Right. Well, what concerns me uh, about it is, I mean, they're, they're calling this a two-year study, uh, but but they're studying what is already agreed on what already is usually studies if you have an issue about fixing uh, get ensuring clean heat you would look at all kinds of alternatives um, and you start with the what if you do nothing at all standard and you work your way up from there to to look at all alternatives and to cost it out and to understand the impact and how you might reach your goal but This doesn't do that. It just says, "Look at what's already in the bill, right?" Or am I right? It's highly
5: prescriptive and does not allow uh, flexibility on the part of the Public Utility Commission to diverge from. uh, You know, they. they, I don't think they can come back and say do nothing, for instance.
1: Well, no, right? (laughs) Because of of all the people are really. understanding the impact of climate change and all, and all that stuff. No, but in, in well, most studies, that's what also, they do is the what if you did nothing, what would it look like?
5: Right. Well, I will point out that you said two years. It's not actually two years. The PUC process could start in August, but they have to have a final product to the legislature by uh, a year and you know into January of that oh. following year. So it's it is an extremely compressed process, and it is not enough time for what it calls for the PUC to do. I think it's very disrespectful of the Public Utility Commission.
1: Well, and they haven't really come up with any cost yet, have have they? Is there anything that's been costed out with the original bill so we have some idea of uh, what we're looking at from a cost increase?
5: No, and this is one of the problems with our, the way our legislature is operating is that they are just pushing it on to the Public Utility Commission, frankly, without any understanding of what they've already pushed onto our public utility commission. So our PUC is the only one that does telecom siting. In other mm-hmm. states, it's done on the local community level with zoning. Our PUC is the only PUC really that does land use siting. So solar projects in Maine and New Hampshire and Massachusetts, unless they're huge projects, all go through local zoning. And so now, and, and none of the process at the PUC is ever discussed. By the legislature, it's a very hands-off way of operating with our legislature. And so they just push things onto the PUC without any real understanding of how things work there. And because I have done so much work assisting people participating in wind and solar and telecom projects, I uh, understand just how busy they are. And what this means right. to to them, you know, they're they're required to form two different committees, issue an RFP for a life cycle analysis, go through an extensive uh, set of workshops and public hearings with stakeholders who have no experience whatsoever with the PUC process, and grapple with the, the numerous demands in the bill. It's it's a, you know there's nothing reasonable about this. Even mm-hmm. if you wanted it done, you would not do it this way.
1: Yeah, I, I, I really, I have read this. Now I read the, the new version. It was almost a strike all, um, that came out of a, uh, appropriations, I believe. Uh, but it's still asking that certain things get done. So I'm assuming this, this system, which is supposed to be studied, will be put in place and then, you know, f- flick the switch when, when all this study is over and it goes well, to the Well, no, el- no, it
5: would, that's what the appropriations committee changed. It'll come back. As a as a bill, it oh. will have to be turned into a bill.
1: But right now, it is. I mean, there's a lot of language in that strike. All, mm-hmm. but did they redo it again?
5: No, no. They will. You know, they everything that that is that passed out of Senate Natural Resources is expected to be done by uh-huh. the PUC. And then the change that was made was to put it into uh, a bill form okay. or to have have what comes out of the PUC come back to the legislature. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I listened to testimony from Ledge Council about this. They confirmed, yes, this would then require a bill.
1: Okay. So there is a little time, even if it's not the full two years that they were talking about, there is a little time to weigh in and to hopefully put a little bit um, more common sense on this because a lot of people who opposed it have submitted – Ideas um, as an alternative um, to to what they're wanting to have happen, and I'd like to go over some of these things with you because, like the new credit marketplace, what is that? Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff in that bill that's new and new conceptually. Yeah,
5: there's also the timing of it coming back to the legislature coincides with an election year,
1: uh.
5: and so one can only imagine mm-hmm. how. Whatever the PUC is doing will play out in terms of elections. And, you know, it strikes me that based on what I'm hearing on the ground, we could have a certain backlash the way we saw with civil unions. And while the Republicans, I will say, have not done a very good job uh, getting representation from other uh, people in the legislature, it is something like this that could change that. Where more reasonable people decide that they have to take a, you know, step up and do their public service to make sure that the, the interests of Vermonters are protected. So, okay, let's go to the credits. Uh, this, this bill really should be called the, uh, credit system. That's really what it is. It, so this, the first part is the simple part that you hear about. So a, uh, an installer of a heat pump whether it's somebody who's in the HVAC business or in the uh, oil heating business, they install a heat pump, and that earns a credit. And the amount of that credit is to be determined through this extensive PUC process. Now, that is intended to encourage the sellers of fossil fuels to get into the installation business and to switch what they do. That comes with a whole other set of issues, which Mm -hmm. I'm going to set aside for a moment because I want to focus on the credits. So the next part of this that isn't getting a lot of attention but should is that this bill was initially – or the idea was initially presented to the Senate Natural Resources Committee in 2021 before the, the Climate Council had acted on it. And it was presented by Rich Coward of Regulatory Assistance Project, who had previously been chair of the Public Service Board back in the 1990s. And at the time, it was presented also jointly with Don Rendell, Hmm. representing Vermont Gas Systems. And that's a very important thing to understand. Now, there's a a, a very short amount uh, in this bill that talks about renewable natural gas. And renewable natural gas is something that, for instance, if you're aware of the Salisbury landfill, or the Salisbury farm, they have a, a system where they are uh, tapping the methane that, mm-hmm. that is produced by the farm, and that's used in-state, and that is marketed by Vermont Gas Systems as a renewable natural gas, and their customers can opt in to pay a premium. But recently, the Vermont Gas Systems Pursued and received a approval from the PUC for a contract for renewable natural gas from a landfill in uh, upstate New York called Seneca Meadows. Seneca Meadows landfill is the subject of numerous lawsuits over its odor issues. So mm. it's a, you know it's a stinky landfill in upstate mm-hmm. New York, and both Vermont Gas Systems and its parent company Energir have a great desire to tap into this market, the renewable natural gas market. And so the uh, language in S5 says that renewable natural gas can earn credits as long as there is a physical delivery source. So that contract, which, by the way, the PUC approved and has been appealed by the intervener to the Vermont Supreme Court, has the ability for Vermont gas systems to purchase the renewable natural gas, which would then go into a pipeline that would, by a very circuitous route, uh, have a direct physical connection to Vermont Gas Systems Pipeline in Vermont, over a 1,000 miles away. And okay. also...
1: Annette, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to do this to you, but we've got to take a, a quick break um, and just hold that thought, sure. because okay. I'm, I'm into this. this. I'm actually understanding this. I'm sorry that I had to interrupt you, um, Annette. It's... We got three of those in, in this hour, um, but you were talking about renewable natural gas, and maybe we could pick up where we left off. Sure, and I, I, I
5: understand this is complicated, yes. and that's one reason that I am getting into the detail, because the, the better word for this bill is convoluted. And this is one way to explain how it's so convoluted. Well, one so, of the
1: senators called it a Rube Goldberg, which means anything that can be made complicated does or is. So,
5: well, and this is a, this is actually a piece that the committee didn't look at, but oh. I can assure you, from what I've heard, that everybody, any any legislator who expresses concern about this bill gets heavily lobbied by by Vermont Gas Systems. Right. They really, really want this. So the answer, the question is why. Well, the answer is that Vermont Gas Systems built this uh, Addison natural gas pipeline at way over cost. And if they have to uh, abandon it as climate policy, uh, you know, intends, then they will uh, have what's called stranded costs. And so by getting a few molecules of renewable natural gas from an upstate New York landfill into their pipeline, that perpetuates the – not only the – Uh, continuation of the gas pipeline in Vermont through 2050, but it also enables them to get credits for the renewable natural gas if this bill goes through the way it is. So they can earn credits just like a heat pump can earn earn credits for the renewable natural gas. And they also, through this contract that they got uh, approval from for the PUC, can buy and sell the gas credits or the methane credits that come from this gas in New York. I mean, this is so complicated. There's two different credit markets, they're brand new really. One's called RINS and then there's a company that does MRETs and one's for the transportation market and one's for the thermal market. And so obviously Vermont Gas Systems wants to is wants to play in these and make money off of the Buying and selling credits, not just the credits, but also the gas. So
1: Can this bill, I'm sorry, enables. Well, if I put ahead. in a heat pump, which in itself has got lots of problems, correct? Especially in cold weather, from what I understand. But I would get credits. So I've got, I don't know, 100 credits. What What do I do with that? Do I Do I turn it in for energy? Uh, so I don't right. have so
5: to, you're, only the the uh, obligated parties would be the ones that would ultimately need the credits. And so if you're a, uh, someone who is the first recipient of, of fossil fuel in Vermont, you would be an obligated party. And then you would need to acquire sufficient credits based on your fossil fuel sales, sales. And then those would be, uh, administered through the PUC, uh, which they, Then then there's something called the uh, the default delivery agent. right? And so the other option for the obligated parties is simply to pay a fee to the default delivery agent. And then and actually the PUC came in and said, we would like more than one default delivery agent. So now there may be more than one. And then those default delivery agents will have to uh, earn the credits. So there are a lot of questions about who's responsible if the default
1: delivery agents can't uh, obtain enough credits. Right. Um, so it's so not, this This conversation is not for me, Pat McDonald, homeowner. No. Uh, no, it's just, it's the people that are making the system work or trying to make the system work. And
5: that's one of the points that the proponents of this are, are trying, that's one of their talking points right now. Nobody's obligated to do any of this. No, you know, it doesn't place
1: any mandates on anyone,
5: well, except the people who sell you your fuels.
1: Right. And, and they the people, are very vocal. I've had Matt Coda on this show. The fuel dealers are just don't know what to do. I mean, they're just berserk. Well, and so
5: it. let's look at, uh, for instance, the propane industry. I've, I've found myself, to my great surprise, a, a real defender of propane. I happen to live off-grid with solar batteries and a backup gasoline generator, and I have done everything I can to minimize the use of fossil fuels. But when, when the propane truck comes here – some of the propane in the big tank goes to heat for a, 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 a non-electric propane furnace that's in my basement that I used to use wood for, but my insurance company required me to put in in order to get fire insurance. Ah. So it's not electric. It will run even if there's no power, um, and that is for heating. However, I also have uh, propane refrigerators, and those are not for heating yet— and. Through this, um, this, the way this legislation is crafted, all the propane that Haskins Gas sells to me would be subject to the charge, even though not all of it is being used for heating. Now that's an example on the propane front, but also think about diesel fuel. The same thing exists like for farmers. If they are getting a delivery, some of it may go to their, to their heating, but some of it may go, you know, nobody's breaking down the, the usage right. on a bill level right now. So the amount of administrative work that it might take, I mean, these are the kinds of issues that I suspect if this bill goes through, the PUC is going to have to grapple with and may come back to the legislature and say, for instance, for propane, it's not fair to require everyone who's using propane to pay fully when uh, the usage is not for heating. Whoa, these things sorry. just haven't paid, nobody paid any attention to. Yeah, you, am I giving you a headache? Yeah, yet? so I'm,
1: I mean, i do not even know what to ask at this point because it's like, whoa, wait a minute. Like, <laughs> I'm looking at my questions going, none of them make sense anymore. Um, let's talk about heat pumps. Okay, do that Because There's a lot of cause...
5: misinformation about heat pumps and there's, um, and it's pretty funny. Um, you know, the, the legislators are now talking about all the misinformation that's out there. So I like to call myself misinformation. So <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Go ahead. <laughs> it's quite evident that people who installed heat pumps a while ago have a a very different technology than heat pumps that are being installed today. So this is the result of uh, Vermont Energy Efficiency Corporation actually working with Mitsubishi to develop a cold climate heat pump. So there are a lot of southern states that use heat pumps, and generally they don't work below 30 or 40 degrees. And there are Vermonters who have that model, and uh, they, their experience is that they don't work in cold temperatures. So that's one reason that you hear they don't work in cold temperatures. Right. The, the current vintage of heat pumps does work in cold temperatures to a certain point. However, I keep hearing from people who have those who say, oh, I only use them for the shoulder months and for air conditioning, because what happens when you use them, for instance, in the, the period of really cold weather we had recently, where it got down to, for me, it was 25 below zero. If you rely on your heat pump, even if it is working, the next month you're going to be hit with a huge electric bill.
6: Right, right.
5: And there's no trigger to tell you this is happening. And so that that happens to people once, and they're like, uh-uh, "I'm turning it off so that's the that's the dynamic and Then there are people who who and i I did ask during this recent cold spell, anybody who uses a heat pump, tell me your experience mm-hmm. and a number of people said they turned it off. some people said that it was blowing cold air, some people said that they relied on their furnace or their oil furnace or their um, wood pellet stove right. so you, you in general in Vermont. Uh, and that the installers and the, the fuel dealers have said this in testimony, they will not just install heat pumps. Mm. that they you know anybody who wants to just go all heat pump, they feel is it's it's not responsible of them because their customers could end up freezing. Mm. And so they they you know say you've got to have some sort of backup. Now, if you're
1: building new, oh, how long, building... Annette? I've got it. We're gonna get right back to you. Mike from moretown is on. He's been holding on the phone. I've been sure. I just want to have him come in. It's a call-in show. If you want to talk to Annette, Mike, go ahead.
3: Good morning. Morning. Uh, on, on the heat pump thing, they run on electricity. If we don't have electricity, they're not going to run at all. And like you said, in really cold weather. They're not efficient. They really aren't. No one has ever said anything about, well, what happens when you don't have heat and all your pipes freeze?
1: Huh?
3: Do you know how much it costs to replace, in say a two-thousand-square-foot house, all the plumbing?
1: You know, that
5: 20,
3: happened. Thousand. dollars. Who's got that kind of money?
1: Right. I have a guy. Who we... are,
3: are retired? Yep. On Social Security? Have that kind of money? No way. But nobody ever talks about that. They only talk about the goody-goody stuff, which in reality really isn't goody-goody. And that's all I'm going to say.
1: Thank you for the call, Mike. I actually have a, a neighbor at camp and his RV put in a heat pump, and I'm very anxious to go back and see how, how that worked for him. Um But anyway, oh, we have to take another break, Annette, and we'll be right back um, with our conversation with Annette Smith. Fascinating stuff. I may actually be learning something here, which is a good thing. Pat McDonald, Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV.
0: In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today... Hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com.
1: Hi there, this is Pat McDonald, uh, back with Vermont Viewpoint and with Annette Smith talking about S5. Annette, I think you've touched a nerve. We've got two people who have called in and want to ask you a question or talk about this issue. First caller is Bruce from Essex. Bruce, take it away.
4: Well, good morning, both of you. Good morning. I hope you're having a great day. Um, I say this a little bit with some jocularity, but... um, Observing the legislature in the past few months, uh, not only on the Clean Heat Standard S5, but also on the Housing Bill S100, yeah. I say if hypocrisy could absorb carbon, we wouldn't need a Clean Heat Act. <laughs> the State House in Montpelier would be the biggest, the greatest carbon sink in the state. And that's two reasons I say that. Uh, This whole question of hypocrisy, the the climate councils, largely populated with people who are going to make money for themselves or their corporations or their lobby groups through the passage of this thing, they helped formulate it. And I think I've said to Pat once before, this is almost like a group carrying out the business plan for Green Mountain Power, Vermont Gas, and their uh, owner, uh, Enigier in Quebec. So that's one point where I think there's a considerable amount of hypocrisy. The second, let's look, I call it the companion bill, this massive housing Uh, reform bill, uh, which just passed the Senate Natural Resources and Energy Committee. That wants to grow the economy, grow the population grow the housing stock. While S-5 wants to reduce <laughs> our carbon footprint in Vermont and admissions, the housing bill comes along bringing increasing the carbon footprint by trying to add, some say, up to 40,000 houses in the next seven years in the state of Vermont. Maybe you could comment on that for me, please, Annette. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Bruce.
4: Well,
5: the, the first thing that comes to mind is... <laughs>
4: I thought we were the green
5: state and we cared about the environment. Um, we don't seem to have any uh, environmental champions anymore. But there also all of this goes to workforce, which th- just doesn't exist mm-hmm. for any of this master plan of installing all this new stuff or building all this new stuff. We just don't have the workforce for it. So there's nothing realistic about it. And it is – as I as, as I have observed, since I have probably spent more time than any citizen watching the Climate Council's work, very much uh, and you know the Clean Heat Standard especially is very much driven by an agenda of people who got appointed by our legislator to serve on this, who came to it with this as an agenda. This is not like it organically grew out of the. Uh, uh, climate Council. And then, for instance, rich Richard Cowart, whose regulatory assistance project is one of the presenters and he's a member of the Climate Council, his uh, company got a $200,000 contract with the state of Massachusetts to sell them the clean heat standard. And one of his staff people serves on the House Environment and Energy Committee that is about to take this up. Uh, another um, person who serves on that committee works for the Energy Futures Group, which is another author of the Clean Heat Standard, yep. and man named Chris Neme. So, I mean, it's easy to connect the dots, but the problem is, what can you do about it?
1: Well, you we could keep talking about this, I think, and let people know what's happening. We have one more caller, Linda from Barrytown. Linda, thanks for hanging on. Sorry we couldn't get to you soon enough. Go ahead.
2: I was just wondering, what should elderly people living in mobile homes do. My home operates on a kerosene furnace, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it takes electricity, electricity to operate that kerosene furnace. Heat pumps and wood pellets cannot be used in a mobile home.
4: What are we supposed
2: to do?
5: So, I, and I, I've worked with people who live in mobile homes. I've lived in a mobile home. I fully understand the, the issues. And there was testimony by the fuel dealers about mobile homes, and they weren't uh, they weren't listened to. At this stage, with this bill going over to the House, I recommend that everyone who is, especially people rep- represented by Democrats, to call them on the weekends at home, not bombard them with emails, but actually talk to people and tell them the realities of the situation. Now, whoever your fuel dealer is, wherever you buy your kerosene, that's the person, that's the company that's going to be uh, put in a situation where what we're seeing that may happen is that the small businesses will be put out of business and we'll end up with a handful of large companies selling these. Uh, you know, the goal overall is to, is to put them out of business and and eliminate the use of fossil fuels, which I think we all know is just not realistic. As much as it you know may be idealistic for a lot of people, it does not. You know, there's no solution right now that that doesn't in some way rely on fossil fuels. It is the Democrats who are marching in lockstep with a tremendous amount of, of arm twisting that goes on. Also, you are represented by in, in Washington County by Senator Perchlick and Senator uh, Watson and Senator um, uh, Cummings. Cummings. And I recommend you call every mm-hmm. single one of them and ask them how this is going to affect them, and and tell them what your experience is and m- make this real for people.
1: And just so you know, um, Linda, I wrote to Senator Perchlick, Andrew Perchlick, and he has agreed to come on the show. He's a sponsor of this bill. He'll be on the show on March 23rd at 10 a.m., so good opportunity to make a phone call. Just saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do thank him for that because... um uh, he wrote right back he's one of the few legislators that I know that he spent quite a bit of time writing back to me in a very detailed email. So kudos he's to He's very his,
5: responsive. He's yeah. even been responsive to me on transportation issues and I'm not a constituent. However He works for the Clean Energy Development Fund at the Department of Public Service, and I have not seen anything come from him that shows that he really understands what this means on the ground for the people who live
1: here. Well, we find out on March 23rd, because I'm just glad he's coming, because we do need – we should present the other side of the story. um, Oh, absolutely, and I don't think – you
5: know, there shouldn't be other sides. We're all in this together, and one of the – One of the things that we're hearing coming from the legislators, especially, say, Senator McDonald and Senator McCormick, are great frustration that if we don't do this, then, you know, we're not doing anything. And that is simply not true. What has happened in the last year, you know, what happened in the last legislative session, the state of Vermont has dedicated more than $200 million, $200 million Mm. to climate spending, with more. Coming along, Senator or Secretary Moore of ANR presented a climate mm-hmm. budget to the House Natural House, now new name, New Name House Environment and Energy Committee. Recently, it's not like we're doing nothing. We are devoting a lot of money to all of the things plus that are in the The Clean Heat Standard. My position is we don't need it. We have the Inflation Reduction Act coming along. We have the Infrastructure Act. We have all this state spending. And at the same time, we've seen a, a big increase in the price of fossil fuels, which is ultimately the goal of the Clean Heat Standard, is to drive up the mm-hmm. price to force people to ch- tra- choose other options. And right now, it may be that if you have a heat pump for most of the usage, you will use less money. But The upfront costs, which are Mm -hmm. not considered in this bill, are what are really important. So if you're going to install a $5,000 heat pump and there's a 75% subsidy, you still have to come up with $1,250. And I think it was
1: Mike that talked about the people who retired. I mean, where do we get the money? I
5: don't have $5,000, $10,000 minimum. You you know, you're going to come up with thousands of dollars. Well, most mm-hmm. of us don't have that sitting around. No. Nope. And so interestingly, the climate council was continuing to meet and they they had a their cross-sector mitigation subcommittee had a had a series of presentations recently on weatherization. And to a person, every one of them talked about how they're going to be hitting a cliff. I think it was in 2027 when all the funding is drying up. Hmm. So at the same time that this clean heat standard would come into effect to, to supposedly install thousands of heat pumps and weatherize thousands of homes, the workforce, even if it is developed, which doesn't exist There won't be money to pay them because of the, the funding cliff is what they called it. Hmm.
1: I, I read somewhere where it said, um, you know, they're working to get the fossil fuel industry to offer Vermonters cleaner, cost saving options. And they mentioned advanced wood heat. And I Mm -hmm. thought, I thought we don't like wood heat. I thought that was something that they're, they're going to want to change on us at some point, and then they talked about. Well, that's
5: about a heat. buzzword for pellet stoves.
1: Ah, okay.
5: And they also have allowed that cordwood stoves that meet EPA certification also uh, fit into this. However, there's also some uh, pretty good reports out that show that that the EPA standards don't necessarily uh, improve air quality. And the last thing we want to see in like Rutland City. Or Bennington, which are in Bowls, is the uh, you know a lot of wood burning because of the they they especially Rutland has inversions where if you've ever seen the cloud that hangs mm-hmm. over Rutland and all the the wood stove smoke that's trapped. I mean, there are a lot of health issues that come with burning wood, and uh, you know the the problem with pellet stoves. Uh, you know, because of my off-grid living, which I've done for more than 30 years, I actually understand how renewable energy systems work. So this whole idea that we're going to electrify everything, it, it requires a lot more renewable energy. Well, I turn everything off at night. That's, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to be running a, uh, pellet stove at night, which has a fan. I'm not going to be running a heat pump at night. And so when you, when you sort of think larger about what does this mean for Vermont and New England and our grid, we are adding a lot of of electrical appliances at a time that we don't have anything to fuel it except natural gas and Hydro-Quebec power and nuclear. And as those are desired to be cut back on, we're supposed to do this with, I don't know, fairy dust or something. Right on. Also, you mentioned I, I nuclear.
1: To, you yeah. mentioned that word.
5: Well, and to Mike's point about what do you do when the power's out? I mm-hmm. just took a look at Green Mountain Power's outage map, and they still have more than twelve thousand people out of power, mostly in the Brattleboro area. And
1: really, from, from this them. last storm? Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
5: This is a this is a serious storm in southern Vermont. Huh. And there are a lot of trees down across roads. You can't even get down some roads, and so you're supposed to get to a warming center. How are you going to do that? Right. I mean, in the in the previous storm, people told me that what kept them going was their wood stove and their non-electric propane heater.
1: Yep, there you go. We have a caller, Dick from Waterbury. Dick, thanks for hanging on.
6: Yeah, good morning. Morning. I'm uh, actually probably pretty well ahead of the game. Uh, I've had solar electricity for 10 years. Uh, I put in a heat pump five years ago uh, and interestingly, when I put in my heat pump, I had three different companies come and they all told me that my house was not laid out to, uh, efficiently use a heat pump. Hmm. Um, I just did not have the, even though it was an open concept, it simply, the, um, air would not transfer from one area to another. So I would need a number of mini splits probably in each room to be able to get, you know, uh, room in the back bedroom, say, huh. or heat in the back bedroom. Uh, I've actually emailed the senators who are involved in this, and I finally did get an answer back from one of them. Uh, my furnace is 25 years old, so that's the next thing on the agenda. And what they told me was to just change out the burner, put in a, uh, a pellet burner why would I put a pellet burner on a 25-year-old burner? <laughs> <laughs> um, my house is not set up in any means for an automated system, so I would be stuck with a uh, small um, storage tank if I could find room in my basement, and then from looking at the website, I would have to put in five-gallon pails of pellets Oh. Multiple times a day.
1: What? May I ask, and, Dick? How old is your house? What's when was it built? Uh,
6: my house was built in the fifty in
5: the fifties.
1: Ah, yeah. There you go.
5: This yeah, is so this I've is common. I've heard done. a lot of people say my house just isn't configured. Yeah. Did you say you did install a heat pump though? I did. Yes. And it, and, and uh, so I, had, I'm curious if uh, you had any uh, service done on it. Uh, I've had it cleaned. I do have it maintained. Yep. So that's one thing we don't hear about much is that they actually have to be cleaned and filters
6: changed and they can build up m- molds um, yes. over time.
5: Oh, great. Yeah,
6: it, it's a very interesting process. They come in, they put a big bag around it, and then they have to run through some chemical cleaners. Um, and mine wasn't too bad, so they said I probably could get away with an every-other-year cleaning, mm-hmm. but you're looking at a couple hundred bucks every other mm-hmm. year. Huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, you know, 70 plus years old now, I don't know if I want to be, uh, committed to dumping in five gallon buckets of pellets, which means I can't go anywhere for extended periods of time.
1: And your home is, is reflective of most Vermont. I mean, we've got an old stock, a, a, an old housing market. They're old, uh, lots of rooms and.
5: His house is new compared to a lot of well, them. Well, I, yeah, probably <laughs> so.
1: Ours is in the 70s. That's why I was saying I was yeah. wondering what they would tell us.
6: Yeah, and I've got a pellet stove in my basement, but I have to lug um, forty-pound bags of pellets oh. uh, downstairs one at a time because I don't have an easy access. I don't have a bulkhead, right. To you know, bring the whole things down. So did that'll you get help your us weatherize first. Pardon me, did you get your house weatherized first? I have done um, a lot of that uh, within the past couple of years. I have completely. Uh, re insulated my attic. I've done air sealing. Uh, when I moved here 20 some odd years ago, I put in all new windows. I insulated. Good for uh, you. From the outside. So, you know, I've tried to stay ahead of the game, but. You have, yeah. Uh,
1: we'll be down at Dick's house, changing. uh, when things are going <laughs> badly, Dick.
6: <laughs> right.
5: Well, you know, it, 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 when the renewable energy standard was passed, the the modeling was based on heat pumps added only after weatherization, and that doesn't seem to be anything on it that anybody's talking about now. They're just talking about in, installing heat pumps, and um, that thing that I set aside early in the show, I think, is important. We've heard from a, I've heard from a lot of people that the installation of the heat pump is just one piece of it, but then if it doesn't work, you can't find anybody to come and fix it. And one hmm. person told me that it cost them more to actually get it fixed than it would have to just, you know, put a new heat pump in. So they're all, I, I'm, I'm concerned that what this legislation does is create an incentive for some of those uh, less ethical people to come in and go into the business of just installing and then vanish. And they get the credits and the fuel dealers have to acquire those credits. It looks to me like a real – without any regulation of the heat pump installers – Who's going to assure that there isn't a whole level of fraud that takes place?
1: Yes, yeah, somewhere I read, I'm looking at it, that they've set aside nine hundred thousand dollars to establish positions within state government to manage this program. Another another managed program with a lot of new new employees. The budget just for
5: this this study, this review, is now I think one point seven million dollars. to You see, in the Department of Public Service, yeah,
1: I, I love it. That's great. And we well, already
5: have now an Office of Climate. I mean, this is where, who is watching what we're actually spending money right. on? Somebody needs to get to the legislators and say, wait. It's not like we're doing nothing, and we come back to this this real problem that our legislature has been captured by this idea every year. We have to do something about climate change. Right. And as long as you tag that label onto it, then it's a must-pass bill, and because
1: otherwise, we're not doing anything. Well, what kills me in that is the the size of Vermont. We could do absolutely everything, spend gobs of money. I don't think we would change the needle much. We are just too small. Not that we shouldn't try. I'm not saying that, but we have to be reasonable about it. I have a great proposition for you, Annette. I think you and I should write a book, Clean Heat Standards for Dummies. We'd make a fortune. (laughs) I mean, seriously, well, think about it. I'm, I'm looking down at the words that they're using in this new strike all legislation here. Um, a clean heat measure, carbon intensity value, the default delivery agent, which you talked about, credit banking. It goes on and on with words. I have no idea what the heck they mean. Um, and if
5: you actually listen to the legislative committee discussion when the bill was being developed – they don't know either. Of course
1: they don't. And they
5: Senator sh- Bray tried to explain who an obligated party was. He couldn't. Yeah. The default delivery. The Public Utility Commission does not want to do this. If they didn't, they won't say it directly, but it's obvious they don't want to do this. And they asked for changes. For instance, this bill also opens up the ability to buy and sell credits in a larger credit market. They asked that to be taken out of the bill. And the, the legislators didn't do it. It, this is really very concerning about, you know, what you see, how you see legislation developed and as, as Bruce pointed out, how disconnected it is from the reality right. of what's going on in our communities. And, you know, we have to somehow find a way to fill our state house with people who are interested in actually supporting what's you know the people who live here, and not some idealistic effort. And, right. and unfortunately, I think that with VPER getting into lobbying and Vermont conservation voters, they are and and the the uh, Democratic women's effort. Right. They are putting people in that are marching in lockstep and are taking over in a way that we are losing a, a fundamental. Aspect of our democracy.
1: Well, what I found interesting was the Senate Natural Resources Committee. There was not one negative voice on there. They were all, as you said, lockstep. Every one of them. Um, so it was sort of a foregone conclusion. Um, we're almost ending the show, and then I can't thank you enough. For coming on the show, and I'm going to talk to you about this dummy book. I think we could, I think there's a niche there we could fill because seriously, how do people f- sort this out? I don't understand it. It is a real Rube Goldberg. Anyway, thank you very much for uh, listening. Don't forget, uh, Senator Perchlik will be on the show on March 23rd at 10 o'clock. So. Get that number ready by your phone. This is Pam McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV, thanking Annette Smith for all the work that she does on behalf of Vermonters.